Hi there, horror hounds, and welcome to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I'm Rob Basercha, and joining me today are my co-hosts, David B. Jacobs and Devin Shepard. How's it going today, guys? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I feel <laughs> these movies definitely took a toll on my head. Anyway, uh, hello. I'm Devin Shepard. I am a horror writer, director, and producer. Uh, you can catch my work, A Nightmare Wakes, currently on Shudder, as well as my horror sci-fi podcast, Cryptids, now available wherever you get your podcasts. And this is David B. Jacobs. I'm a writer, director, script supervisor, and horror addict. You can watch my two-minute quarantine slasher, One Last Call, which I directed and our own Devin Shepard wrote and produced on Blind Raven Productions' YouTube channel. And I'm Rob Basercha. I'm the owner and runner of Whimsy Productions, LLC, where we make a lot of really cool horror content and other kinds of short films, spec commercials, all that crazy stuff. I also am a grip for Local 52 in the New York City tri-state area. And recently, I have a short film that I wrote and a friend of mine, Chris Guzzo, directed called Family Bond. Keep an eye out for that link. So please follow us on all our social media accounts at Cadaver Dogs Pod. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at Cadaver Dogs Pod. Now, this week, we have some two really cool psychological thrillers, and the first one is going to be Devin Shepard telling us about this really creepy movie. So our first movie is Daniel Isn't Real. It's a 2019 film directed by Adam Egypt Mortimer. As a child, Luke had an imaginary friend, Daniel. By playing pretend, Daniel helped Luke escape the nightmares of the world, like his mother deteriorating from her mental illness. Now, as a college student, Luke begins to feel the weight of the world again, with pressures to grow up and the fears that he'll become like his mother. Luke brings his imaginary friend Daniel back, and there is a sense of revitalization. But soon, Daniel begins to take over, and Luke loses control of his life. And so we begin to question, is Luke entering schizophrenia? Or is the title of the film totally lying to us, and Daniel is in fact real? Spoiler alert, Daniel is real. I, I actually don't think Daniel's real. Whoa! Oh, really? What? How? We'll get to that. I gotta tell you, this movie had an awesome opener. Luke, Miles Robbins' character, meets an imaginary friend named Daniel, who uh, is very real to him, but his mother doesn't see, but she goes along with it. And Daniel tells him to dump a bottle of pills into uh, his mother's smoothie that it will give his mother magic powers. You know, surprise, surprise, it actually almost just kills her. So then she makes... Uh, Luke stick Daniel inside the dollhouse, which physiologically seems impossible. The dollhouse is too small for him to fit inside. But uh, <laughs> Luke is screaming at him, get in, get in, get in. And then he goes in there. And it's just a really great intro to a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the question there is, uh, did she also have him go to a therapist? He's seeing a therapist later, but I'm like, no, but she doesn't like doctors. And I think they say that. Uh, she doesn't? I think her, the very, very first line that she says is, is her saying that she doesn't like doctors and she doesn't like pills and that she's done with medicine. Um, and then throughout the entire movie, uh, Luke is saying, my mom really doesn't like doctors, blah, 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 blah. And like, that's the whole opening is like that fight between the mother and the father. It's her saying like, I'm done. Like, I'm not taking these pills anymore. I'm not like taking, I don't want to say not taking care of myself. She's going to take care of herself in her own way. Essentially, she's taking care of her mental illness on her own terms. Yeah, but she's not doing a very good job. No. Right. That is very clear. Uh, by the first scene where we see her older with, with Luke is terrifying. Just coming home and just seeing how destroyed his mother is and, and how she... 
It's a very sweet moment because you can tell that she's not fully um, in a lucid state, but at the same time, like, loves her son so much and, like, seems to, like, break out of her her mental illness state and, like, has a real conversation with him and then goes right back into her delusion. And that's, that's like, kind of the driving conflict of the movie is that he feels like he might be schizophrenic and he's falling into schizophrenia. And that we as the audience are, are uh, conflicted in whether we think Daniel is real or whether this is just someone suffering from a severe form of abnormal, aggressive schizophrenia. And I say abnormal because most schizophrenics are non-aggressive. Yes, thank you for specifying that. Um, it's a common myth that schizophrenia makes people more aggressive. That is extremely not the case. Um, that That is extremely uncommon for schizophrenics to become aggressive. Um, unless mixed with some other sort of intoxication, usually some sort of substance abuse, uh, at least from my research, which this episode was really hard to research. So please forgive us if we make mistakes. We probably we're obviously not doctors. Um, you know, Rob's on his way to be there, but that's doctor of, of horror films, not doctor in philosophy, not doctor of, uh, minds kind of yeah definitely definitely not a doctor of medical minds in in any regard uh unfortunately my own anecdotal experience uh one of the i've met a few schizophrenics who unfortunately were friends of mine in high school who later were diagnosed but uh one of them was very aggressive so that that initially skewed my own perception of it because he became very aggressive in in a similar way to the characters in these films actually we're going to talk about which to me draws like almost like a personal connection between the two which is strange you know i wouldn't see that but it's it's something unreal to speak to someone who tells you without a doubt in their mind about something that happened between the two of you and other people involved that you know for a fact is complete fiction but they believe it that that's unreal yeah it's also implied that it's not implied it's there are symptoms expressed that could also be linked to a potential dissociative identity disorder. I don't want to diagnose Luke. I, I don't think we have the ability to do that. And I also think that this is a movie and sometimes things are done more haphazardly in a non-realistic way. So it's not even useful to diagnose him. Um, but I, I think they have a really good depiction of an out-of-body experience in this movie, that there's a scene about halfway through when Luke is making out with some girl, but it's not the girl he's really into, so he's he's not into it. Yeah, it's the one Daniel's into. Yes. So then Daniel says, give me control, let me do this. And Luke doesn't really know what that means, but then they have this crazy fucking face twisting oh, uh, yeah. special effect. And then Daniel is then in control of Luke's body and starts aggressively making out with Sophie while Luke is just incapable of communicating when he like tries to grab daniel his arm breaks off and Mm -hmm. he's just like panicked and freaked out that he cannot control his own body he is watching from the outside and it's it's terrifying that is such a good scene it's terrifying and it's so real it's like yeah it's exactly the way that it feels to have a a dissociative episode right and i think like everything to you guys that you guys are saying is like Adam and, and, and the filmmakers really take all of these to the extreme and they go, they push it to 11. They really, really go really, really far, but it's all really grounded in reality. And like you were saying, Rob, something that is relatable. I mean, 
it's hard to say that you can relate to your arm being literally cut in half and the bone and meat sticking out. But like that moment of being in the the dissociative episode and like splitting in between, I really hate myself right now. And like, I'm also, but I'm also really enjoying what's happening. I mean, he's having sex in the moment, but like, you know, I feel like everyone's had those moments of like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. It also, it feels very dreamlike in certain scenes where like he, he's in, incapable of controlling things and things he finds himself in different situations without uh, having the connective tissue from like one moment to the next uh, being totally clear. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is just like breaking of his mind. But what the movie does do was that it, it demonizes emphasis on the demon uh, mental illness. It, it kind of like, disregards its uh responsibility like it removes its responsibility from defining mentally earless and like depicting it clearly because it's a horror movie and daniel is actually supposed to be major spoiler a demon like he's a demon who he's a body hopper he takes over your identity then he eats your soul or your ego or something yeah and it it concludes that the the therapist isn't capable of helping daniel it shows um that the the therapist tries to do like some weird uh natural medicine thing that's very much probably not scientific at all and is not something a therapist would do yeah that therapist is such a weak character like what yeah. it, literally in the beginning oh shit i wrote it down somewhere um i, I actually like the therapist <laughs> but he literally tells him in the beginning like Luke sits down and is like, I'm seeing things. I'm literally seeing things. And the therapist is like, lean into that. Go forth. <laughs> Your mother has schizophrenia, but that's, to- you know what? And it usually comes out, like literally in the sentence, it usually comes out around this time. But no, lean into your delusions. I'm like, that's not, what What therapist are you seeing? What is this? No one's going to suggest that. Yeah, the therapist basically is responsible for everything that happens because he literally tells Luke like, oh, you should let Daniel back in. Yeah, what the fuck? It's like, no, no, you shouldn't, man. Don't do that. That's a bad Don't idea. Do that. <laughs> he literally, oh, maybe he didn't say that I tried to kill his mom. No, he didn't. And, and the way he talks about Daniel is like kind of abstract. He makes it sound like he's not really seeing him when he talks to the therapist. So the therapist, it's almost like this like Jungian idea that Daniel's like his shadow self, like his inner creative destructive force and like he sees this kid and it's like oh you you're kind of missing that right yeah. and uh the, the girlfriend character cassie kind of does something similar she's like oh maybe you should lean into this creative force you know and in that way maybe the film's making a critique on like maybe maybe people should lean away from this idea of like creative uh, mental illness and, and and view it from more of like an objective stance of like yeah, creative forces are good and all, but maybe it's good to medicate them also. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. The, the movie kind of takes both stances on the medical thing. I mean, medicine can't help Luke. Medicine very clearly helps his mother. It's almost a non-stance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of just an exploration of that, right? But I really like what you were saying about the creative process, because I think this movie talks about it so much, very specifically by giving Luke the, um, I think he's he's on track to become a lawyer and he's like no I never do anything creative and that's when we start to see him kind of devolve is when he opens up that creative self and it's just so interesting to know that you know obviously the people making the movie are artists as well and so like I feel like there's a sense of 
possibly putting themselves a little bit into that um, character and like their own experiences into that character. One could probably argue that, you know, they've gone through that artistic process of just losing yourself a little bit too much into the art, into the illusions, into the um, design that they create into this other world. Yeah. And I think the movie definitely at least tries to argue that that's not a good thing. Mental illness is not a source of creative inspiration. It is dangerous and that you it's dangerous to you. I mean, the movie makes it blurry because then it also tries to show how he is going to become aggressive because of his mental illness, which is um, a really terrible stigma that horror movies love to throw around and yeah but at the same time the mental illness isn't a real mental illness right but regardless i think you're right that the mental illness and the creative is are they're two separate things because in the end luke does destroy daniel kind of by using his imagination and using his own creative abilities rather than daniel's creative abilities so in a way he like found his artistic self you know when he takes the broom and imagines it as a sword and stabs him with it like that's him not daniel that's him taking control of his imagination, right? But then he also has to kill himself in order to stop Daniel, which is definitely not yeah. a good ending for that scenario. For a mental illness standpoint, yeah. It's also implied that Daniel is going to find a new body because he, he jumps into the void. So he, he didn't really, he didn't beat Daniel in a way. In fact, he did the same thing John did. Speaking of um, loss of identity, to step away a little bit from the mental health issue into inceldom and the problem of like weak uh, men who at least perceive themselves as weak and latching on to like over-aggressive male archetypes or toxic masculinity and how uh, Daniel kind of takes on the embodiment of the toxic man, which he absolutely does. I mean, he's hyper-aggressive towards women. He beats the shit out of Luke's roommate, who I don't even know what he hates. He's just, he's kind of a tool bag, but he's not a bad guy. I think Daniel hates him because he perceives him as weak. I mean, it, it's almost just like an assertion of being the alpha male, I think. I think so. Yeah. I think it's totally a, an assertion of dominance. I don't think it's anything personal against the guy. I think he just sees him as a lesser man and is trying to assert that, Luke, you're actually better than this guy. Which gets him kicked out of university because it was an insane thing to do. He yeah. shoved his face onto a steam pipe. Like, holy <laughs> fucking hell. My friend in high school I was talking about, who I no longer talk to because he seems dangerous, but uh, he latched onto this idea of, like, you know, having to be the alpha and, and having to... He told me once that men should never lose weight because then then they could be the smallest man in the room. And I'm like, that that's insane. That's, that's an insane thing, thing yeah. to say. Unhealthy, yeah. Yeah, oh, it was, it was off the deep end, and this movie reminded me of that. Luke is the main character. It is his perspective. And sure, Daniel is a demon, but it's like I was saying with the, the Pulse thing, you, you can't have the imagery and use the language and then say, oh, but it's a demon. It's, it's not really him. Like, no, that the ideas are in there. We can, to some extent, attribute, at least on a metaphorical level, Daniel's actions to Luke. And it is someone who is wrestling with his own toxic masculinity, with mm -hmm. his own ideas of this and trying to fight against it and in some cases failing. And we sympathize with him. We care about him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also stating that he needs at least a little bit of, like, uh, if you want to call it masculinity or, or, like, assertiveness. He needs a little bit more aggression in his life, but then it goes way too far. It takes over. Like, like his shadow self is, is taking over his personality. There, There is masculinity that is not toxic, and there is masculinity that is toxic. 
And I think that Daniel, to some extent, represents his masculinity as a whole. But in his case, his masculinity actualizes itself in a very toxic way that really quickly overtakes itself and is very, very quickly just way over the top and too much. Right. I, th- I think it also... it, it he overcompromises, I think is really the thing is we see him. He doesn't have any male role models and, you know, his father's gone. He's not friends with his roommate. Um, he's not really friends with anybody. I think this movie does such a good job at portraying loneliness. Um, and we can talk about that at another time, but, um, yeah, I think it's this, it stems from this overall fear of like, and this is where the toxic masculinity comes in fear of not being man enough, right? Fear of not being like, himself enough he overcompensates for 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 daniel yeah hence the form it's like too much of too much of anything is a bad thing most moral philosophy when they talk about masculinity one of the tenets is like responsibility holding and daniel has no concept of responsibility whatsoever yeah in fact he doesn't even have um self-preservation in mind because he can jump from one body to the next daniel is very much a sociopath Yes. Well, not exactly, because sociopaths usually have self-preservation in mind. Yeah, but I think that takes on a different form for Daniel, because his self-preservation does not require the body he's in to be preserved. Well, yeah, yeah, but since he's not human, I don't think we can give him that diagnosis. That's fair, that's fair, that's fair. Yeah, because it's just so far removed. I mean, what does it mean when you're an ethereal spirit, when you can jump into another dimension and eat people? So what do you guys think? Do you think this movie leaves it ambiguous whether or not Daniel's real? No. I think it does a good job. Yeah, I don't agree with this at all. So I want to hear why you think that he could not be real. Well, everything that happens, you can kind of explain away as a mental illness. The only scene that that seems like kind of far-fetched is when he's reading the book quotes. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. But since the whole film is through uh, Luke's perspective, we can call into question whether or not that even happened. That's fair. I guess. Even when we see Luke falling asleep, it's in those first moments of sleep. Like, we don't see him fully out of it, ever. Yeah. I mean, it could be a dream or something. Yeah, it could. Right. So, but still, from Luke's point of view. Still from Luke's point of view. And then the scene with the, the therapist. The therapist goes into that where, where, you know, Daniel comes and reveals himself to another person. That's the one time we see it happen, right? The therapist enters that scene saying, we're both going to go under hypnosis. And so it could be argued that the therapist is then under hypnosis when he sees Daniel. So maybe Daniel also isn't necessarily real in that moment. I guess, are you then also arguing that Cassie isn't actually seeing Daniel in the end, that she's just seeing Luke? Yes. Yeah. Because she's always seen a darkness in Luke that no one else sees. Like she sees the full thing. So yeah, it could possibly be. Cassie is portrayed kind of as like an empath, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. She, she also has her own very uh, aggressive, almost destructive creative side. I she mean, does. She's, she, she's off off the rails. But so. she lives with it. Not particularly well. I mean, in the second scene, we see her about to hit a girl with a bottle over like an art project. She definitely has problems. Yeah, but in the next scene after that, she takes that aggression and puts it towards her art. So we see her living in this balance of what kind of we were talking earlier, where she lives in the balance between her life, her darkness, and her artistic self right there's a balance there and it's a healthy balance and we see through luke that those three things like don't i I don't necessarily think it's a healthy balance though 
But then she's like, she's okay. She's fine after she destroys the art piece. They're laughing. We're all a little unhinged. We all have this darkness inside of us. In fact, I think she says we all have the darkness inside of us. Mm-hmm. And it's just the way that we work with that darkness and the way that we manage that darkness. And we see in Luke that he doesn't do a very good job. Let's take a break right here to hear a word from our sponsor. Ready? I think so. Uh, not sure what we need for an actual monster hunt. Flashlight? Check. Warm clothes? Check. Recorder? Recording. Then we're ready. Eve! Eve! Cryptids, a sci-fi mystery podcast from Wild Obscura. Now available wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more, visit cryptidspodcast.com or find us on Twitter at cryptidspodcast. Eyes to the skies. And we're back. David's going to kick us off with our next film. A dream is a story you tell yourself. But what if someone else were telling you these stories? Dennis Peterson is a young man with some mental disability under the care of his older brother, and he has been experiencing frightening and violent hallucinations. He speaks to a version of himself in the mirror, and this storyteller doppelganger urges him to become smarter by killing. This movie is The Evil Within. It stars Frederick Kohler, Sean Patrick Flannery, Dina Meyer, and Michael Berryman. It was written and directed by Andrew Getty based on dreams and fears that he actually had as a child. I really thought this was an interesting creative film. And Devin hated it. So what are your thoughts, Devin? Oh, we get to go right into why I hated it. Okay, well, first, I want to say that, like, it's really hard to separate the artist from the product here, I think. And I this is something, I mean, you even can. in your intro, you were saying, you know, this is the backstory to Andrew Getty. And, and it's so hard to just, like, not have that be a part of the film that we just watched. It's just bad writing. I mean, it, a lot of it is expositional. It clearly showed just not an understanding of filmmaking. But I like the amateurish quality. I mean... It just adds to the weirdness. It's such a weird fucking movie. Every scene, it's like stilted. It doesn't quite fit, but it it works. It all like it's all cohesive, and it's, it feels very personal to me. It it's like how the room is so amateurish that it becomes friggin' hilarious. This movie is so amateurish, but all of those mistakes for me just contribute to this surreal horror, and, and it it it. It, it freaks me the fuck out. This is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. You think? I, I think it's very unsettling. I Yeah, no, there were scenes 
there are actual jump scares in this movie that made me jump. And I was yeah. like, fuck, like, that was a really good jump scare. Yeah. It's not just jump scares, though. It's... So I just said this is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Fear is obviously a very personal thing. But for me, basically, I have three main fears that this movie just taps into all of them. Mm. I'm like really obsessed with control and logic. So the first thing is that I'm absolutely terrified of the concept of losing control of my actions, of my mind. This movie That's literally what the movie's about. Second, logic. Surreal movies are much more likely to scare me than straightforward ones. I think the more they tap into surrealism, the the scarier they get, especially if they can tackle in such a way that makes me question my own reality, where it goes away from the... Like, with Daniel Isn't Real, it, it does this a little bit, but still, like, well, I'm watching a movie. With The Evil Within, I'm like... It, it blends dream and reality in such a way where you really aren't sure which is which. You just aren't sure what you're watching or what's happening. And then the third fear that it taps into is spiders. says says the spider-man loving (laughs) guy uh fun fact daniel isn't real uh there was an earlier draft of that one where daniel was going to have a spider form wow people really are scared of spiders just touching on the surrealism here and this is kind of tying back to what you were saying earlier david i agree surrealist movies can be really scary they're really really hard to pull off to bring you into that state of is this happening or is this not happening that really really works and like bring and like makes it ultimately a a personal experience and I think that's where the amateurish comes out for me is that unlike you guys I didn't feel like the amateur helped with the surrealist what it was to me was it showed the writer director he just had a disconnect with reality and I get that that can be seen as surrealist but my perception of it was just he just was out of tune and out of touch with with the world in a really weird way to the point where it it was like, oh, that's not an imaginary thing that's happening. That's actually how the director thinks the world is. That's not him trying to fuck with us thinking that the world is something different. That's his actual belief. Yeah. See, I, I disagree. I, I actually totally disagree because I think um, we go back into the territory of the unreliable like narrator. And Dennis is extremely unreliable. His, his own sense of reality is completely destroyed. And he has a, a cognitive disability. In the story, he used to be kind of a child prodigy who was later brain damaged by his brother who uh, punched him in the face. He fell downstairs and his brain got fucked up. And I think that like adds to the terror of it. Like there are all these adult conversations that are like filtered through as if they were seen by a child. And they're just really strange. Like when he goes in, and he speaks to the ice cream lady. She's like, oh, of course you like me. I'm outlandishly attractive or something along those lines. And I was like, whoa, I like how the oddness never stops. There's never a scene in this movie where you're like, oh, this isn't weird. No, it just gets weirder. How's the ending weirder than the opening? The opening's insane. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with you, Devin, that I think it's impossible in this case to separate the art from the artist and... I, I, I feel like the context of a movie is really important. I actually, when I recommend this movie to people, I tell them to look up the backstory before they watch it because you need to know what you're watching. <laughs> Andrew Getty is the grandson of J. Paul Getty, who is an oil tycoon. He had these terrifying dreams as a child, which he, just like the character in the movie, he actually convinced himself that someone must be placing these there that they are too terrified to be coming from his own brain. He grew up, he inherited uh, a fortune from his family. 
and he spent it all on two things, methamphetamine and this movie. He was not given good guidance at all on how to spend his money. He, like, bought all the equipment instead of renting it. He colored every shot in the movie before editing, which you don't do that. It's a complete waste of time and money. He built all his animatronics by hand himself, which is awesome. That's so impressive. That is really fucking cool. So they began filming in 2002. They finished filming in 2008 after just stop and go for years and years and years. He spent the rest of his life cutting the movie, obsessing over every frame, every visual effect, which he also did himself. Uh, He became a recluse. Then in 2015, he died of several medical complications, including a pre-existing condition he had. It was an accident. His producer at this point realized that the movie was almost finished. It really just needed sound work. Uh, So they finished it up. They did some ADR, which is really bad ADR, um, and released the movie on 2017 with, like, no bells or anything. It just dropped on Amazon, and no one saw it. But it seems like it's kind of becoming a sleeper cult hit. Bit emphasis on sleeper, yeah. A lot of, yeah, (laughs) and big emphasis on sleeper. A lot of people (laughs) really like it. It was shot in Getty's own house, right? So when you open the door... There's this giant bird skeleton there, and I'm like, oh, it's fucking crazy. It felt like it was a personal movie. Like, so many movies yeah. feel like they're trying to do something. Even Daniel isn't real feels like it's it's out there with this agenda to do this thing. I felt like the evil within, the only agenda was like, this is the thing that scares me. I'm going to share it with you. Yeah, you're right, and I think that's why we can't separate the, the art from the artist here. And I think that's also... I understand your viewpoint, but I think that's also why it pissed me off so much because I knew it was such a personal story because I knew that he was writing himself into these characters. There's certain moments that just make me angry, especially the anti-woman moments. They literally um, intercut the girlfriend and the brother talking about um, their lives and the girlfriend's like, oh, you'll never marry me, which is totally randomly planted and she doesn't say anything else about her own self. Um in the entire movie and only talks about the brother and asking what's going on in his life. But they intercut that scene with Dennis watching a documentary about a spider and saying the woman spider, she eats her spouse. She eats her children. I have the quote somewhere, but I'm not going to pull it up. And I'm like, this is just straight up like woman hating. It's just straight up woman hating. And that it seems so personal. Well, the character's woman hating, but it's it's done so like again this kind of goes into the toxic masculinity it's like when it there seems to be this link between certain men when they feel extremely weak and powerless they go to the opposite of stream which is this you know idea that women are, 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 to, are to be used and to be killed it first starts off he's talking about well should i kill the kitten next door and he's like well, well people eat meat and they say to not kill so that's obviously a fake rule so i can kill the cat next door and then he goes and kills like a ton of animals well, he says, oh, you know, the ice cream girl, uh, she doesn't think I'm hot because I'm weak. Well, if I murder her, then she'll think I'm super hot. And you're like, that's an insane leap in logic, you know? Yes. And I think I think that definitely is toxic masculinity. But I think that's separate from the spider issue where he's literally intercutting a scene where the, the man and the woman are talking about the relationship. And we're seeing from the man's point of view that the woman is 
not agreeing with him and what he wants. She wants something completely different. She looks a little, you know, just angry and crazed. And we're intercutting that with a female spider eating the other spiders. And literally the narrator in that says, to the female, men are merely food. And that's the issue. That's the issue that, we're, that the filmmaker feels like he's saying that women just don't care. I don't think the movie has a good relationship with women. I agree with that. I, 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 I do think that there's a lot of uh, sexist material in the movie, especially just in how like the men are very, very fleshed out and interesting, and the women are really one-dimensional throughout the movie. Um, I didn't actually link the spider to the the woman aspect of it, though. It is his brother. It's his family that doesn't care about him, or at least in his mind, he's very paranoid, and he believes that his brother is always making fun of him behind his back. Uh, the storyteller tells him, like, your brother hates you and whatnot. Which is all good and fine, but it's making a statement when you literally intercut it with the scene with the female character at that time. But it was a statement on Dennis's point of view. And Dennis is, is a delusional, murdering sexist. Who Andrew Getty, like, sees himself as. Well, that's... I, I think that's besides the point. Andrew Getty might be a shitty guy. And I think if you compare that, like, oh, Getty's in this movie, then you're like, well, great. Now I'm getting to see into his mind. Right. For you, it was interesting. But that's why I didn't like the movie was because I felt that egomania. That's exactly it. It was like, I just, like... I didn't like that. I didn't like seeing a movie about an asshole. Yeah, I get that. Before we character assassinate Getty, I just, I, I, cause I assumed he was going to be a shitty person. Everything I found about him, people said he was like the nicest person ever. Um, I couldn't find anything that actually spoke about him negatively. Um, which also might be because he died, but I don't know. Like, I don't want to make any assumptions about his actual character. Uh, Frederick Kohler, who plays Dennis, did at some point say that he felt like he was playing Getty. So we yeah. can take that as we will. And, and, and to be clear, I'm judging Getty's character based on his writing of Dennis and these other characters in the film. Like, that's, that's what yeah. I'm judging because, like, everything that we just said, because it feels very, very personal. Yes, absolutely. And that's completely reasonable. I think he, there, it is, the movie clearly has a weird relationship with women. Yeah, even the um, social worker yeah. oh my doesn't God. really have any depth at all. They demonize her. They demonize they demonize social work, point blank. They demonize her, but at the same time... She's right. Yeah, the relationship between Dennis and his brother is really, really fucking interesting. Uh, either with what's seen in the movie or with what's implied to have happened off screen. Do you guys think John was abusive toward Dennis? I don't think his character is consistent enough to really make um, any sort of leaps there. <laughs> that, that's actually really fair. I, uh, but my first reaction is no. I don't think he was abusive since he was a child. I think it's heavily implied he might have been an abusive older brother. That's almost par for the course with like brothers. Most of them don't cause brain damage though. Accident or not, that's really <laughs> extreme. Asterix, most of them. Accident or not is very key to that because I also don't think it's clear whether or not it was an accident. Oh, interesting. Uh, we hear that story twice, once from John's perspective and once from Dennis's, and both have reason to either lie or have their ideas of it distorted. John claims it was an accident. Then we see it in Dennis's puppet show, keeping in mind this is the dark Dennis, and it's not an accident. It's just like, no, I want to hurt you. 
Well, when I was three years old, I pushed my two-year-old brother down the stairs, and I still feel bad about it. But I pushed him down the stairs on purpose. I did it, you know. But you're a child, and it's a different you at that point. And it's like, it, it's an interesting thing to have an adult dealing with the repercussions of a choice that he made as a kid when he literally didn't know and I don't want to say didn't know any better, but was it's a, he's different, and he doesn't yeah, have yeah. like a fully formed brain Absolutely. essentially, and a fully formed like emotional map. I agree with you, but I mean, I still feel guilty about doing that to my brother. And if he had brain damage, I would feel terrible still. I don't think I would yeah. ever get over it. I I mean, the way Dennis is portrayed is, in my opinion, like pretty offensive. Um, he he is absolutely a caricature of someone with an intellectual disability it's not clear if he actually has an intellectual disability or not uh brain damage can cause things there's also an argument to me that he might be more neurodivergent he is shown to actually be intelligent we don't know i don't think getty actually had anything in mind and i think that it comes off a little bit offensive because of that lack of specificity and the caricatureness however i think it does do a really good job at showing that Dennis has this rich inner life that is not recognized by the people around him. And I think it has a really nuanced portrayal of his brother, who John loves Dennis and wants what's best for him. But at the same time, he's like, I want to live my own life. I, I don't even know what music I like anymore. Like, he, he is controlled by his younger brother and by having to take care of him. And... He might be abusive. The social worker actually believes that he has continued to hit his brother. We are never shown this. We don't know if it's actually true or not. But the social worker apparently has enough reason to believe this that she can take Dennis away from him. That's interesting because she originally, the social worker originally comes to the house because someone called child services. Yeah. Claiming that there was abuse. But we never figure out who that was. Yeah. It might have been Dennis. That's what I was thinking. Because he didn't abuse his brother. He, he grabbed his arm. That's not that's hardly anything. The movie has something really interesting to say about the role of benefactors and uh, the people who benefit from them and mm. uh, yeah. whether or not their relationship can always be healthy. Because Dennis blames his older brother for his condition and, and he never lets go of that resentment. And it's almost like if his brother had stopped trying to take on this grandstanding approach of like being his benefactor, maybe Dennis would have had a better life. And if we do want to do want to apply this to Getty, um, it, there seems to be something said about growing up in a rich family where you feel like you you're yes. undeserving of the fortune bestowed upon you. His family was really messed up. I mean, J. Paul Getty is like one of the worst people ever. Um, I won't go that far. That's that's saying a lot. But he's he, J. Paul Getty was a really bad person and really bad to his family specifically. Uh, Christopher Plummer played J.P. Getty in All the Money in the World, which is a very true story about how he was so stingy with his money that he let uh, Andrew's cousin uh, get an ear cut off because he didn't want to pay the kidnappers a ransom. So that's the family Getty was raised in. Not a healthy environment to grow up in. At no. This is a really interesting conversation considering our first episode uh, was on Eat the Rich and we talked about how we were kind of unsympathetic towards the extremely wealthy. And here we are talking about the Gettys who are literally like 1%. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, if you remember that episode, I was sympathetic to uh, the the dumbasses. What was their actual name? In, in the Dumas. 
the Dumases <laughs> who uh, who had to murder people or they would explode. I was sympathetic. Yep. Yeah, that's I said fair. it was okay. I was like, if they were gonna blow up Grandma, I'd kill people. To derail a little bit, or or to bring it back, there is also kind of an implication in one of the opening scenes that Dennis might have been molested, and I don't know if I necessarily think that that actually happened because I think the movie does absolutely nothing with that. Where does it say that? Uh, the second dream where the cadaver uh, unzips his back and crawls inside of him. And the scene looks very, very reminiscent of a rape scene. Yeah. And in fact, yes. when he slipped him over, I thought he was going to rape him. Same. Like, yeah. It's sleep paralysis. What do you think about that scene compared to when uh, Daniel enters into Luke and he rips his jaw like off? I actually think the storyteller cadaver scene is like more bizarre and scarier. I think it's scarier because it, it implies rape. It does imply rape. It does. I also just think it looks kind of cooler. Yeah, because he, but he also does it from behind, and it implies this like unknowing and unwilling. Just it's creepier. It's creepier just because it it it's unknown. I, I it, when you talk about it, it sounds really silly because a, a literal zipper appears on Dennis's back, and he unzips yep. his back right. and then goes inside of him in, like a skin suit. But the way it's done is just like really creepy. It like it looks very real, I, and that's weird. what makes it so freaky. Like, like so I don't blood. even know how they did that effect. Um, There's so many cool effects. I mean, both of these movies deal with someone who is battling their mental health and trying to maintain their sanity uh, while they are experiencing these extreme and terrifying hallucinations or not hallucinations depending on how you take it and i mean we've been talking about in the evil within it's also very very ambiguous as to whether uh the storyteller is real or not like you can interpret it as being entire you can interpret this movie in so many freaking ways you, you can interpret it as his brother is abusive or his brother is not abusive or his brother molested him or his brother didn't molest him is schizophrenic or dissociative identity disorder or none of those things and the story tour is real you can identify it that he's schizophrenic and killing people he's schizophrenic and or not killing people like maybe none of the murders even happened i don't know there are a million ways you can interpret the evil within yeah yeah it's also they, they both beg this question of like control and daniel isn't real really seems like about how do i control my own identity yeah. uh whereas the evil within it feels like it has to do with like a failure to express oneself. I guess they both yes. have that problem, like mm. control of expressing self. But the evil within seems to have even more an emphasis on uh, a desire to control your family and the people around you. I mean, with with the communication aspect, this is where I think the evil within actually does its mental health stuff well. When he's arguing with John in the beginning of the movie about the mirror, and John's making all these arguments and. Dennis knows what he feels and he's trying to express it. He's just like, you know, I won't be able to argue with all of your big words. He has such a rich inner life and he's just completely incapable of communicating that. And the movie shows you how frustrating this is for him, that you are, you're trapped in his mind with him. And the reason that you can't tell what's real or not is because he can't tell what's real or not. And that's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I... I watched the film and I was like, I think Dennis is actually doing a pretty good job at explaining himself. And what, how I read it was his limitations are literally only what he tells himself that he can't do. 
He mm. says, I can't do there. Th- I can't do that. And therefore I can't do that. And, and, and you see it is like, if he decides that he can't do something, then it won't happen. But if he decides that he can do something, then everything can happen. Yeah. And it's literally just like, yeah, his loss of ability. Yeah. And it's yeah. really interesting with John too, because John doesn't even really see Dennis's limitations either because there's a scene where he's like, he's in the basement doing something. Maybe he could become a carpenter. Yeah, but then in the same sentence, he's like, Dina Meyer asks him, oh, what's he building? She's like, I don't care. He's, I don't know. It probably sucks. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that's just a failure in the script sometimes because yeah. it's so inconsistent. Yeah. But, but it's there's another scene that speaks to his inner life when he starts explaining um, stories or uh, dreams are the oh, story yeah, yeah. we tell ourselves. I wrote down this and whole dialogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could you read it, please? Because yeah. John, yeah, just read it, please. All right. A dream is a story I tell myself, right? John says, what do you mean exactly? I tell myself a story. One part of my brain tells another part of my brain a story. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of saying it, I guess. Well, if it's a story I tell me, how can I trick myself? You can't tell yourself a joke and not see the punchline coming. Oh, what, you do you think somebody else is telling you these stories? I think that it has to be. And then John turns into the cadaver and he's like, someone like me. That's a great scene. It's actually just terrifying. <laughs> I made it into a joke, but it's it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> he feels like he's doing like a Leonardo DiCaprio and what's he to kill the grape? Kind of. Is that like less so? Except I think DiCaprio's was more accurate. I don't know. Some people now, in retrospect, say it wasn't. I have no idea. Maybe. Well, how can you say accurate when there's no diagnosis of anything that's happening with dennis i mean it's not accurate to because there isn't it because they they didn't pick one is what i mean yeah and that's what i'm saying is like yeah you can't say it's offensive you can't say it's accurate because we don't know what they're depicting you can still say it's offensive they're, they're just depicting something vague and yeah. not clear our understanding of these issues has also evolved a lot since the movie was shot I mean, nowadays, if they were to shoot this movie now, they'd probably be a big push to cast someone who actually has a, a mental disability. I mean, my, my thoughts on that for indie films is like that, that seems to put a stress on them when they're already stressed enough. So that's kind of not fair. But, not necessarily. Uh, uh, I think so. If you're struggling, like, like if you have a minimal budget, you need to find a particular type of actor on top of just finding an actor who's willing to do it within your budget range. That's just another stress. I don't think that's fair for indie film directors for studios where the budget is virtually unlimited. Yeah, fine. Add stress to them. I'm okay with that. But it's the purpose of the producers to, to craft the budget around the things that are important to, in order to support them. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the most important thing is telling the story. I don't see why casting someone with a mental disability would cost you more money. Uh, it might not, no, but it if in the event that it might, <laughs> well, there might be less actors. There are just less actors to draw from. Yeah, but none of them are names. They're not going to charge you anything. That's a fair point. I think it's easier for an indie film to do it than a blockbuster movie. I mean, it's not that it's hard for a blockbuster movie, but it would be hard mm-hmm. to argue with the annoying money people who would be like, well, this person's not a star, so we can't cast them. So, you know. It's less of a money issue and more of like a distribution and marketing issue. Um, you know, you can make a movie for whatever money, but if they don't have a name, no one's going to watch it. Yeah. yeah We're going yeah. through this with uh, trans actors as well right now that 
we're, we're finally starting to have trans stars because people are starting to finally cast trans actors. Right. Yeah. And it, it's all about it's it's people spending money on stardom and really the whole entire industry is built upon actors having names and actors being essentially influencers. Actors are the first influencers. Right. Yep. And we rely too much on actors to like complete or build a film. It's it's stupid. Both of these movies deal with mental illness that Daniel isn't real does this as well. And. I'm sure this is a conversation we will have multiple times throughout this podcast because horror deals with mental illness a shit ton. Um, but what what do you guys think about how these movies treat mental illness and what is a horror filmmaker's responsibility when dealing with this issue? Yeah, I think for me, the root of both films are outside of mental illness. I think a fear that is in Daniel isn't real is like the fear of becoming somebody else, fear of becoming your parents, the fear of becoming an adult, the fear of becoming just something that isn't yourself. While um, the evil within is the fear of losing control and not having the ability, like you said, David, uh, to communicate and, and to be a part of the world that you want to be a part of. And I think in both cases, if we didn't have the characters be mentally disabled, the, those fears and that story would have still come across. I think the evil within could have been a lot stronger if we didn't have a, a person with disabilities as the main character. I think the fears and the movie would have been just as good. And same thing with Daniel isn't real. I think without his mother being schizophrenic and without, you know, having schizophrenia be a fear of his and just having the fear of becoming your parents, I think it would have been just as strong. And I feel like they use them in a sort of crutch that wasn't necessarily needed. And I think that's where the issue is. Is like, what is the purpose of having those in the, in the story? And is it really needed there? I, I actually like uh, Daniel's and Real's depiction of like schizophrenia and his mother. Him, him being afraid that he might be becoming her because we, we all have the, the fear of like, Oh, am I becoming like my parents? Right. And this adds another one. Am I, am I take, am I inheriting the condition of my parents, which is, which is something else. And which is why I, I view the movie as not demonic possession. I, I view it as a mental illness. Does it distance yourself a little bit more from Luke by having that fear of schizophrenia in there? No. Because you just said that, like, you know, you have that fear of becoming your parents. That's already something that you can relate by adding schizophrenia to that. Does that distance yourself from the character a little bit more? No, I think it makes it more interesting. If, if that wasn't in there, it would be a different type of movie. But I, I can I can empathize with it and or I can sympathize with it more readily because I can compare it to something else. I also think movies are about creating an empathy with something that is not necessarily you. And I mean... There are definitely people who can relate to having a schizophrenic parent. Like, saying that that makes it less sympathetic would be just bringing in our own experiences that none of us, I, I think, have family members who are schizophrenic. But there are also people who absolutely can relate to that. And in some ways, a movie movies are about showing you that this experience is not that different from your own. And you can relate to this. And I actually agree with Rob that I think Daniel Isn't Real's portrayal of the mother's mental illness is very compassionate and very kind i mean i'm probably gonna bring up this point a lot but 
uh, it's a film. I don't think it holds the same responsibilities as like a medical journal. Um, so I, I think to depict it like 100% accurately and whatnot, if it does, the more accurate it is, that's to the film's merit. But, you know, I, I don't think it needs to be 100% accurate. Um, sometimes accuracy takes away from the story of the film. So I'm going to take a stance this week, and I'm actually going to disagree with you. Um, I don't think it's black and white. I think these movies both do some things well and some things wrong. Uh, I do think that filmmakers have a responsibility for some degree of accuracy when portraying mental illness. Because I understand what you're saying, Rob, that it's not a medical journal. But most people don't read medical journals. Most people, our understanding of these mental illnesses is from movies. Would I say it's to the merit of the filmmaker when they when they add more accuracy to something? What I'm saying is we should be able to criticize them if they don't. But to look at it as like this moral responsibility, there are certain times where the story supersedes accuracy. And if the story is done correctly, then I think that supersedes this responsibility to do, portray things correctly as seen by society. Because just because you portray one character in one movie some way doesn't mean you should take that character and apply it to everyone because that's prejudicial and if you do that as a viewer then you're being prejudiced not necessarily the filmmaker that's really interesting yeah it depends on the point of view that the film takes and rob what you're saying is that the films can take a societal view where in order for us in the moment to relate to said character or understand the message that the filmmaker is trying to make, the filmmaker then has to steer the audience and use their own prejudices, like societal prejudices, in order to guide them to that conclusion. It's not necessarily true that like everyone in the audience is going to be knowledgeable and um, aware of certain things and mental illnesses be- because of the world that we live in. And that's changing. But we also have to, you know, when we make a movie, we also have to make it accessible to the audience. And I, I, I agree more with you, David. I think there is a responsibility, but I think there is something with what Rob is saying and just like for the sake of the story and for the sake of connecting and getting the message of the story clear that there is some leeway there on what you you should and should not be doing. Some, but I think it's a slippery slope. Yes. We have maybe 10,000 movies or something already where a person with mental illness is shown as being aggressive and dangerous, and that does create a stigma, and people are afraid of people with mental illness. Hmm. I think one of the problems is, is this notion of mental illness as this like umbrella thing. Like if someone is hyper aggressive, they have a mental illness. It's called hyper aggressive or whatever. And it's like, okay, they're all aggressive or they wouldn't have that. But mental illness as it all includes things like ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, bipolar. I think the big issue here that I'm hearing too is that we're giving movies a lot of power, which has always been the case, right? What you're saying, David, is movies literally have the opportunity to change people's minds about society, about people. But what we should start doing is not giving movies so much power. They're just stories we tell ourselves. It's not even just they have the opportunity. It's that they do change the ways we think. And uh, when we wield that responsibly, we can use that well and make sure people are getting an accurate idea. And when we wield that irresponsibly and without think putting much thought into it, then we may not intend to create the stigma, but we do. Yeah. I, I don't like the idea of art being 
idealistic all the time. I think that takes away from a vast uh, pool of art. I think it can be. And that if you put this idealism into all your art, you know, all the characters ideal, this is the way we should see them. This is the way society should be. We're going to lose a great deal of interesting art, especially in horror, because there are horror films that deal with deep-seated fears and things that are like taboo. And sometimes they're things that are taboo for a good reason, but they should be explored still. And they might not say anything nice about society. In fact, they might say something really bad. One of my favorite movies is like Woman in the Dunes. Now there's like a Marxist uprising. So they're like surgeons in like sympathy. So people might think this is a good movie or it has something good to say about society. But it's a pro-communist movie and I'm very anti-communist. But it's a great fucking movie. And then another one that I really like is uh, The Breaking of the Waves, Lars von Trier. That, that movie has a really awful view on on women who should suffer throughout their lives and then at the end they go to heaven or whatever right and some people hate it for that reason but i think it's a great movie it's a great movie i think it's a really interesting question that you that you raised in in so many words rob should art be a re- reflection of society or should art help change society or, or can art do both or can art do both or can art just be personal and and should we not like hate on it for this responsibility of not being personal yeah what is the responsibility i mean i would argue that making art accurate in the sense that we're discussing would be doing both that it would become a better reflection of society and would help to change society yeah but if it's from uh if it's a very personal like internalized viewpoint of a character like yeah. the evil within then even the accuracy of conversation is off in that movie and to me i think it adds to the weirdness and, and the effect and to be clear I like both of these movies, and I like a lot of movies that use this trope. I think a movie, I I think a movie can be good and problematic at the same time. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. <laughs> I I have a question for both of you, actually. Great. Um, on this on this topic of like uh, a a good or the correct reflection of like mental illness. How do you think it's possible to really do that in a horror movie? Like, like how do you do a horror movie about mental illness but like sheds a positive light on it? I mean, at the end of the day, it is a horror movie. That seems difficult. It might be really interesting. I'm just wondering, do you guys think that can be done? I mean, the mentally ill person doesn't have to be the bad guy. Yeah. Like even even the way you phrase that, like there's an assumption in a horror movie that someone with a mental illness is going to be the villain, and. I'm struggling to think of an example where there's a horror movie where Daniel is there's a, well, well, he's definitely the villain in that, unless you just say it's a demon. Yeah, but the mother. Uh, but that that's a good example, I think. Yeah, I think you're right in some way, David. I think if something's in a movie, then the movie says something about that thing every time, especially in a horror movie. I don't think it's bad if you disagree with the thing it's saying. Just because a movie disagrees with your political stance and might even say something detrimental, I don't think it means it's a bad movie. Like, I'm so extreme. I think you could make, like, uh, who's something awful? Like, like a pro Genghis Khan movie, and it would be good. Or like a pro, uh, like, Nazi or um, jihadist, like, a suicide bomber movie. And I think it could still be a good movie. Yeah, you're, you're entering into, like, dangerous territory there. But the overall idea that you put forward, I agree with. But when you make the movie about politics by having pro-Genghis, pro-Nazi, that's when it becomes harder to to agree with that statement. The extreme end here would be like Birth of a Nation. Yes. I, I think there are some things 
that we don't need to say. Well, yeah, but I don't think you should draw your political stance from films. No, we give them too much power. Yeah, I'm with it. But these movies aren't drawing political stances. They're drawing stances on mental illness that people are not educated on. No one aside from the three of us has ever watched Daniel Isn't Real and then looked up facts about schizophrenia. I doubt that. I bet you people have. And I, I think I think then maybe it's less the responsibility of the filmmaker and more the responsibility of the viewer to understand and to further research these things. The, the yeah. filmmaker presents the conversation. The audience is how we react to it and how we respond and how we become a part of that conversation. Art is subjective. It's how people view it and it's how people experience it. And it's not necessarily the responsibility of the artist to tell you how to feel about something. Because no matter what they tell you how to feel about something, it's going to change from person to person. I agree. And I actually think it's it's a bigger danger to try and universalize the messages filmmakers should make. I think they should be extremely diversified and we should get extremely polarized ideas about it. And they shouldn't be criticized based on their... Uh, conflict with your own political views because otherwise we are getting just propaganda cinema which i honestly see a lot and i don't like it so that that's it for this week we are going to wrap it up with my favorite part of the show which is the bone review section where we take each film we review them on a one through four bone review scale with half bones in between starting us off this week is devin shepherd um i'll start with daniel isn't real I think I'm going to give it two, two and a half bones, two and a half bones. That's a little bit. Yeah, I know. David looks in, looking a little surprised here. I was thinking about giving it two bones. I liked it a lot more this time. Did not like it the first time. I thought Adam Egypt Mortimer really did a wonderful job directing. Miles um, Robbins fucking killing it. And I think in the context of watching it with the evil within, I enjoyed it a lot more just because I had uh, more to contribute to the conversation in my mind about mental illness and everything else that was presented. So two and a half there. Evil Within, I'm going to give it, like I, I, I warned you guys, I'm going to give it the smallest bone rating I've ever given. I'm going to get it half a bone. <laughs> and that's purely for the special effects. <laughs> I just, I didn't, I, if it wasn't clear to anybody, I did not like this movie. <laughs> I am going to give Daniel's Isn't Real two and a half bones. I like this movie. I think it's really good. Um, it doesn't do anything super amazing for me. I think it's fairly derivative. I know you guys really like the score, and I think it's an effective score, but I don't find it unique or spectacular in any kind of way. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just like it. There's there's not much more to say about it. I think it's interesting. The Evil Within is really cool. It's so weird. It's so strange. All the special effects are fantastic. The low-budget atmosphere mixed with these crazy special effects and this bizarre story structure just add to the creepiness. And with that strong opening, the finale is so much cooler, too. If you watch this movie, please stick through it to the end. I am going to give it three bones. Really cool movie. And that's my reviews. I will give Daniel Isn't Real... Three bones. I I, 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 I I really like this movie. I think it's really cool. I think the score is fucking awesome. The performances are great. It's well-directed. Uh, there's some places where the, the, the script still feels weaker, like with the therapist. There are, like, scenes that don't really go anywhere sometimes. But it feels weirdly personal to me, in a way. And I think it is just that concept of 
losing control. The idea of this dark alter ego, it's a possession movie from the perspective of the possessed. And I think that is so much scarier. And then The Evil Within is even, just dials it up to 11, and The Evil Within is, like, actually, it's between that and The Shining for the scariest movie I've ever seen. Uh, it's completely amateurish, and the filmmaking is not technically good, but it's also kind of amazing and beautiful and unique and raw and original. If you haven't seen this movie, like, you you have no rubric to understand what this movie is like, because it, it is completely unique onto itself there's nothing else you can possibly compare it to i'm not going to give it a rating because i believe it exists outside of traditional concepts of quality and cannot be placed on a one to four bone scale at all i roll yeah serious oh my gosh the only thing more pretentious than the movie itself was just david's interpretation and rating of the film I like this interpretation. The rating was just oh, terrible. I can't. No, I respect you. I, respect I can't rate you. it. It it it's 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 too strange. I mean, how would you rate the room? Fair point. So that is it for us this week, guys. Please watch these films. Give us your views on Cadaver Dogs Pod or email us. And ask yourselves what's the responsibility of filmmakers when dealing with issues as sensitive as mental health. And what do you guys think about the core themes of control and the family relationship between benefactor and benefactee? I'm Rob Asercher, and this has been a Cadaver Dogs podcast. What makes you think the podcast's over? What makes you think it's ever gonna end? anywhere because I'm about to announce the films that we'll be covering on next week's episode. We'll be covering horrific premonitions with Stephen King's The Dead Zone and of course none other than the very first Final Destination movie. I predict this will be a delightful discussion and I do hope you join us in two weeks right here on Cadaver Dogs. See ya pups.